SW Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm your host, as well as the founder of Healthcare Voices. But I'm not only here to help answer your healthcare and health insurance questions. I've also gone through uh, the American medical system uh, myself because a few years ago I was diagnosed with cancer. So uh, I've gone through surprise medical bills, insurance denials, and more. And we're here to answer your healthcare and health insurance questions and help you get the care that you need. So please call or text in your questions and we will answer them in a future episode. And our first question today is about uh, whether uh, what you should do if you don't have health insurance. Open enrollment through the Affordable Care Act is over for most people, but some people might still be eligible to enroll in health insurance now. Uh, and if you're not eligible for insurance until open enrollment re starts again at the end of the year, what should you do? Uh, to answer, welcome Zoid from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Uh, so yeah, open enrollment has now ended in all states um, for this year. However, there are a lot of folks that could still qualify for a special enrollment period. So these, um, a lot of these are qualifying life events. So if you lost your insurance coverage, such as through a job, if you got married, divorced, had a baby, <clears throat> you'll typically qualify. There are also some groups that are eligible for monthly special enrollment periods. I mean, you can enroll in a, in a new plan or change your plan every month of the year. Um, so if you're a member of a federally recognized tribe or in most states, if you're low income, so if your income is projected to be about between 100 and 150 percent of the federal poverty level, so that's typically between about 16,000 to 20,000 for the year if you file, file solo, um, you could be eligible for that special enrollment period. Um, lastly, if you're not eligible for any of these, it's worth checking to see if you are eligible for Medicaid because there is no enrollment periods for that. You can enroll in Medicaid anytime. Sometimes also Medicaid coverage can be retroactive. Um, you know, it can go back to the first of the month, the month that you applied, even if you don't hear back for a couple months. So it's worth to get that um, in as quick as you can. Um, and you can find out your eligibility for all of these things by going through healthcare.gov um, or going to our website, healthsherpa.com. Um, or if you're not as comfortable with, you know, running a quote online yourself, you can give us a call and we have um, licensed consumer advocates who are happy to help you figure out your eligibility. As well. Our next question is from Lucy, who wants to know who's eligible for Medicare and when do you need to sign up? Uh, also, what's the penalty for not signing up for Medicare on time? I mailed my husband's form to Medicare instead of Social Security. How do I know he signed up for Medicare? So you're almost always eligible for Medicare when you turn 65. Or if you're under 65, if you have SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, for 29 months. If you're receiving Social Security benefits, you'll be automatically enrolled and should receive a notice about your automatic enrollment a few months ahead of time. If you're not receiving Social Security and want to enroll in Medicare, you should contact Social Security three or four months before your 65th birthday to enroll. You can go to ssa.gov slash Medicare to sign up for Medicare or visit your local Social Security office in person or call. 
You can delay enrolling in Medicare Part B without penalty if you have health insurance through your job or your spouse's job and the company has at least 20 employees and you're actively working. You can sign up at any time you'd like up until eight months after you lose your employer coverage. You should not delay enrolling if you have retiree coverage from your job or your spouse's job. If you don't have coverage through your job or your spouse's job or the company that provides your coverage employs fewer than 20, you must sign up for Medicare when you're first eligible at 65 or face a 10% Part B penalty for every year you delay enrollment. What's more, you'll need to wait until the general enrollment period, which is between January and March, to sign up, and your coverage won't start for a few more months. So what you should probably do is call Medicare at 1-800-633-4227 to see if your husband did sign up since you mailed the form to Medicare. You could also complete the form again online at ssa.gov slash Medicare to make sure he's enrolled. Our next question is from Charles, who wants to know, how do the insurance companies calculate the share of copay for medications? Zoid? Uh, um, um, it's a great question. Um, and in many ways, pres- prescription drug pricing is a black box. It's um, There is a few different stakeholders, but the process is very opaque. So first of all, most insurance companies actually don't set those those prices, those copays themselves. And instead, they use something called pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. Um, The idea behind PBMs is that they're able to negotiate directly with the drug manufacturers and in theory get better prices. And so they're the ones who create the formulary, which says what drugs your insurance covers and what tier they're in. They set the price, they manage your claims, take your payments, and then they pay the manufacturer and keep a small percentage. Um, But what we've learned through the years is that they often take a really sizable margin for themselves, um, more than just that small percentage, and have actually driven up the prices of a lot of these drugs. Um, So it's hard to say, you know, it's kind of a general question, but in general, it's these PBMs that are setting these prices. Um, And there are some movements to change that, um, like, I'm blanking on his name now, but the guy from Shark Tank set up, you know, the Mark Cuban, Mark Cuban thank you, um, set up um, basically a, an online uh, pharmacy where you can get a lot of different generic drugs and it tells you exactly how much it costs to manufacture them and the the small fee that they take. And so there are some movements like this to remove a lot of um, just that lack of insight into how these prices are set. Thanks, Zoid. And our next question is from Elaine, who wants to know, if I'm on standard Medicare, do I need a supplement from Medicare when switching to uh, from an Advantage plan? Uh, so that everyone's on the same page, let me explain that people with Medicare have a choice of Medicare Advantage plans, which are administered uh, by corporate health insurers and also traditional Medicare, which is administered by the government directly. So you choose traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage. If you opt for traditional Medicare, which gives you broad access to doctors and hospitals across the U.S., you'll want supplemental coverage to protect yourself from high out-of-pocket costs if you need a lot of costly care, because traditional Medicare does not have an out-of-pocket cap. You can buy different types of supplemental coverage, sometimes called Medigap policies. Medigap picks up most of your out-of-pocket costs in traditional Medicare. 
Be aware that unless you live in New York, Massachusetts, Maine, or Connecticut, you might not be able to buy Medigap coverage except when you first enroll in Medicare. Insurers generally do not have to sell you insurance except when you first turn 65. There are a few other exceptions, but a lot of people who want to switch out of Medicare Advantage find that they are effectively locked in. They can switch to traditional Medicare, but they can't get a Medigap policy to cover all the additional costs. If you qualify for Medicaid, you don't need Medigap. Medicaid will pick up your out-of-pocket costs in traditional Medicare. Our next question is from a senior on Medicare that uh, texted in. Uh, they plan to travel internationally during the late spring out of the United States. They plan to spend six months minimum in Ghana. So they, they're wondering what should they do about international medical insurance? Zoe? Yeah, so um, at HealthSherpa, we don't sell international insurance. So I don't have a kind of a specific list of recommendations. But in general, um, we recommend really reading the fine print very carefully. In particular, pay attention to if there are any any plans that have benefit li limits, either annual or lifetime or whatever the, the lifetime of the policy is. You know, it could say something like we'll pay the first $50,000 of care, which can sound like a lot of money. Um, but depending on where you're going and what happens, um, it can go quickly, especially if you end up needing medical transport to another country or back home. Definitely. And also check out uh, how healthcare is provided in the country or countries that you're visiting, uh, because uh, it may be that even residents, uh, non-citizens, non are still eligible to uh, use their healthcare system. And you may find that it's extremely affordable compared to healthcare in the United States. Our next question is from Pamela, who wants to know, how can we deal with employers who self-insure their employees with tiered plans that hurt those who have serious health issues? Zoid? Yeah, so there, there are, in theory, laws and regulations in place that are supposed to prevent employers from being able to do this with tiered plans. You know, employers can have tiered plans um, in some respects for, you know, legitimate categories of employees that are defined by the IRS, but they're, they're not supposed to be able to, you know, specifically hurt certain categories of employees. Um, but that obviously doesn't mean that there aren't loopholes. And of course, the rules are going to be different for different types of employers, like large versus small. Um, it also could depend on the state that you live in, because of course, there are the federal rules, but then some states are more strict about their own state labor laws. Um, so that being said, there's a few different avenues that you can take. So first of all, um, you know, even though it's self it's self-insured, your employer is still subject to your state's Department of Insurance or DOI. So they should actually within the DOI have a department specifically for employer-based insurance. So if you're concerned that your employer is doing something they shouldn't be, you can always report to your state's DOI and they will look into it. Um, you can also talk to an employment lawyer. Um, they're lawyers that are going to specialize in labor laws and worker rights, and they'll, um, they should be able to advise you on if it looks like your employer is following the law or and what kind of recourse you might have. And then lastly, um, it's kind of a classic, but we often forget about it. It's organizing with your fellow employees. Um, so whether you have a union or maybe you don't have a union or you don't like your union, which, you know, some trades don't have the best unions, there are still ways to organize with your coworkers. There are actually platforms and organizations that specialize in helping you do that. 
Um, so just one example is coworker.org, where you can essentially make a petition sort of like change.org, but it's specifically for changes in the workplace. And they also have like a library of resources for you and you can even contact them to get expert help. So I look into organizations like that. Um, if you think this is something you'd like to pursue, you know, getting together with your coworkers and making the change. Thanks, Zoid. And our final question for today is from Shale, who wants to know, does traditional Medicare cover ground ambulance services? And if not, why not? So traditional Medicare does cover ground ambulance services. And if you have a supplemental insurance policy that fills gaps in traditional Medicare coverage, either Medigap or Medicaid or supplemental coverage from your employer, you should have little or no out-of-pocket costs. Uh, Ambulance services are a big problem for people uh, with uh, private insurance. And we just had a show uh, where we talked about the No Surprises Act and the hole in it is about ground ambulance services. So stay tuned if you are not on Medicare, uh, because hopefully there will be changes coming to ambulance uh, bills uh, in the future. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest from today, Dr. Shetal Shah. He's a practicing neonatologist and researcher to talk about the decline in infant and child vaccination rates. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much for having me, <clears throat> excuse me, on Care Talk. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to take a few minutes to really talk about the importance of childhood immunizations and discuss a little bit about what's been happening really with our childhood uh, public health infrastructure, particularly as it relates to immunizations and vaccines. I think the first thing we have to talk about is define the discussion and the scopes of these discussions. So we're talking about the standard routine childhood immunizations. So within that group, I think we need to acknowledge that vaccination is among the most, if not the most successful public health strategies that we've ever, as as a human race, really come up with. There was an, an analysis done by the Center for Disease Control that just looked at the years 1994 to 2013 and estimated that in the United States alone, our vaccine infrastructure, the administration of these routine, safe and effective childhood vaccines, reduced and eliminated 322 million episodes of illness, 21 million hospitalizations, and over 732,000 premature deaths. So I think it's important for us to just sort of recognize. Unfortunately, I think we've now gotten to a point where people are beginning to worry more about the vaccines themselves than the diseases they prevent. And we've talked a little bit about how vaccines are becoming a victim of their own success. A lot of these diseases are now foreign to parents of young children. And because they don't have any experience with them, they focus more on the risks of the vaccine relative to the tremendous benefit that immunization provide. Um, we do have, we have seen really beginning since the mid 1990s up until today, rising rates of parental vaccine refusal. And that number can range anywhere from about 2% to about 6%. And while that might not seem like a lot, we know that vaccine refusers tend to geographically co-locate. So if you are in a zip code, for example, where a lot of people are refusing vaccines, Um, or where there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy, there are going to be a lot of other people in that neighborhood who refuse vaccines. And that's really important because that creates very vulnerable pockets 
where these diseases can return. And that's particularly important for a disease like measles. Um, pediatricians and neonatologists and public health researchers always talk about measles as really being the canary in the coal mine of our vaccine public health system because it's so highly infectious. One person with measles can infect up to 18 um, that we really need to keep our measles immunization rates uh, within small groups high at about 97 to 98% if we're really going to effectively protect not just the people who are immunized, but all of the other people who have legitimate medical reasons uh, for not being able to immunize. And the problem with that is that I said, once you have all these um, immunization rates go below that threshold of what we call herd immunity in a very specific area, that's when these diseases begin to return. And that's part of the reason we saw in 2015, the Disneyland measles outbreak, which ultimately spread to about seven states. Um, and pediatricians have been warning about this for years, right? We said that as these immunization rates have increased, we're going to see a return of these diseases. So in 2015 or 2014 to 2015, we had Disneyland. There was a mumps outbreak in 2015 that spread through the national hockey. In 2019, we had the New York uh, measles outbreak, which was really centered in the lower Hudson Valley area of New York, as well as in Brooklyn, where you had large numbers of unimmunized individuals. And even this year, or last year, in 2022, we're still really dealing with the uh, aftermath of the Ohio measles outbreak, in which 85 kids, approximately 85 kids were infected and almost 30 um, greater than 30 actually needed to be to be hospitalized. Now, I want to draw a distinction here between vaccine refusal, which are people who just say, I do not want the vaccine um, or a vaccine, and vaccine hesitant, which are parents that may or may not have a, a, a truly healthy skepticism of vaccine, but of vaccines, but are open to engaging with their healthcare provider, with their physician about the reasons for getting. Now that number has always been somewhere between six and, and 10%. Now the thing that's most concerning, I think recently, is that you have this refusal number of about 6%, but then in March of 2020, really saw a weakening of our vaccine infrastructure. And that was because pediatric offices and public health departments, just like the rest of the country, had to shut down for a large part of 2020. And when that occurred, that meant that routine distribution of a lot of these vaccines went from March 2020 to roughly the end of the year. Over 11 million doses of the routine child health, childhood immunizations were missed. On top of that, 1.4 of those, 1.4 million of those vaccines were measles vaccines. So you take the, the 6% or up to 6% of people who are vaccine refusers. Now you add people that could not themselves get immunized because of the shutdown. And sure enough, we're beginning to see the return of more diseases, not just the Ohio measles outbreak that I just talked to, but we've had cases of polio in New York. Uh, it's also worth me mentioning, I always talk about this because we talk about all these recent measles, uh, measles outbreaks, but remember measles was technically eliminated from the U.S. in the year 2000. So it just speaks to what's been happening over the past two decades. Um, the thing that I also wanted to mention briefly is one of the things that we're seeing with COVID vaccine is the skepticism that people have about COVID vaccine is really beginning to now impact the routine childhood vaccines. Routine childhood vaccines that have been around in some cases for six or seven decades. What's happening is the group of vac that's sort of vaccine hesitant um, has really found a new home 
with um, and COVID has really been a, a lightning has really been a lightning rod for those people who are questioning vaccines. And now we're seeing routine childhood vaccination refusal go. And now it's, you know, 2%, 6%, and now in some cases as high as almost 9%. And what's interesting is where those families are coming from. Some of them are coming from that vaccine hesitant group that we talked about. That's the group that has that healthy skepticism of vaccines, but engages with their physician to talk about. But some of them are coming from the group that was previously fully accepting of vaccines. And I think that's really concerning from our standpoint, because when you start adding all those different groups of vaccine refusal, vaccine hesitant, and now considering refusal, you really wind up getting to the point where it's becoming, there's a normalization of refusing childhood. And that, in my opinion, is a situation that is really ripe uh, for the return of not just measles, but not just measles and not just polio, but mumps again and other vaccines. Some of these vaccine preventable diseases, I remind you, have never really gone away, right? Influenza is a vaccine preventable disease, but parents, you know, up to one fourth of parents are vaccine hesitant specifically about influenza vaccine, not the other child. We've seen annual pertussis outbreaks because the tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis vaccines that uh, adolescents get, those rates are lower than they should. And so when you put all of this together, I think it's really important for people to understand that vaccines are safe. The childhood vaccines are safe and effective. They are certainly something that some parents might call into question given all the talk about vaccines related to COVID, but they've been around for years and they shouldn't be lumped together with a lot of the rhetoric that's out there about other vaccines. So I think that's incredibly important. So what I want to tell you is what I tell all of the parents that I take, you know, whose children that I take. If you have a question about a vaccine, talk to your healthcare, talk to your physician about what's in the vaccine, why you should get it, and most importantly, what happens to those who wind up actually getting it with the disease that this vaccine, and then take all of that information and then discuss it. The other point that I really want to make is that if you're going to go online, make sure that you look at sources of information that are, there was a large study done in the journal Nature, which is one of the most prestigious scientific journals uh, in the world, that looked at 55 million tweets and looked at the tweets that it contained misinformation or falsehoods about vaccine safety and efficacy. And they saw a strong correlation between people who were looking at those tweets, where they were located, and rates of vaccine refusal in those specific environments. Now, that's not to say that the, that the social media is causing the vaccine refusal, but it certainly shows that there's a strong correlation between the misinformation on social media and reduced vaccine. There are lots of places to go online that will give you evidence-based, medically vetted information about vaccines. Those places include the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and a site that I frequently use is the Vaccine Education Center, which is housed at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. There are questions, there are answers there that uh, relate to any question a parent could have about a vaccine from every very every specific type of vaccine to concerns about preservatives or adjuvants that are included in the vaccine to preserve its shelf life. Um, to information about the diseases that they themselves prevent, um, as well as answers to frequently asked questions about the vaccine. So I hope that uh, in this past few minutes, you've gained a sort of a greater understanding of where we are right now in this moment as it relates to the routine childhood immunizations. 
that you scare that you share at least a little bit of my worry that some of these diseases are going to become um, begin to return even more than they already have and perhaps in greater force and that you have some resources to go to if you yourself have some questions thank and you I have a question for you, uh, Dr. Shaw. If a, a parent maybe has uh, missed uh, some of the vaccines for their children because of the pandemic, what should they do? Dr. Shaw, what, what, what should people do if they've missed some of the routine vaccines? Should How do they catch up? Sure. So there are standard schedules that every pediatrician will know about in terms of how to catch your infant up from vaccines. We saw this really with 2020 when all when places started to open up again, you had pediatricians that needed to immunize children that were coming in, plus the, you know, the, the, the millions of children that missed out on vaccinations from March till whenever their state decided to open up. Um, it took some time because there is a fixed interval. You can't just say, okay, this child has missed several vaccines, just give them all at once. They have to be timed appropriately. Um, but uh, they can be caught up and can be caught up relatively quickly. So for example, vaccines that need to be given every two months can be accelerated and given in some cases in six weeks. And that buys you an extra two weeks. And then you do another six weeks after that, potentially have been caught up even a month early. And it's important to do that because the greatest period of vulnerability for a lot of these illnesses, these vaccine preventable illnesses are when the children are very, you want to make sure that they're protected while they're in, you know, while they're in the infant age. Group. Thank you. Uh, and thank you everybody that joined us today. Uh, please talk to your doctor if you have questions or concerns about vaccines for your children. Uh, we want to make sure that you are safe and protected and your family is too. And please keep calling and texting in your healthcare and health insurance questions, and we will answer them in future episodes. This is Care Talk. <laughs>